0: ccc.net. If I had a dollar for every time I said those words over the last three years, three and a half years, I'd be rich. Um, As a nurse that was educating myself, critically thinking through um, the beginning of this entire narrative starting in February of 2019, um, I quickly found Uh, Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Paul Merrick, and several others from FLCCC. When I was faced with being a hospital supervisor and my coworker two weeks post-vaccination asked me to advocate for her and to try that drug that I have been talking about for the last year and a half. This was in August of September, August of 2021. Um, I printed out FLCCC protocol, handed it to her and she said, this is the drug I wanted and pointed to Ivermectin. Um, very quickly we were met with backlash and, uh, primarily the doctor who was the hospitalist on call had come in and or told the nurse that she will not prescribe it because it was controversial. And (laughs) I was just amazed. Controversial is not a reason not to practice medicine. And I gave her FLCCC protocol and I got a call from the nurse and she said, she's going to order it. And I was like, praise God. And then a few minutes later, she told me pharmacy blocked it. And so we've heard this story many, many times. It was the number one reason why I recorded the conversation with the pharmacist and then became a whistleblower was because of this. And now we have a book out by Dr. Pierre Corey, who, and and I thought, guys, I mean, when I was talking with all the hospitalists, I was telling them, he's a pulmonologist. He's a specialist. How are we not listening to him? And so, anyway, he came out with the book, The War on Ivermectin, and he is with us today. So, thank you so much, Dr. Corey. I just love you. You know that uh, every time I see you.
1: <laughs> thanks, Jody. I appreciate these sentiments. And uh, yeah, it has been a war for sure. Um, I, I, I appreciate that anecdote. And that anecdote was played out hundreds of thousands of times in hospitals all across the US. And even the world. Um, And um, there are reasons for why that happened. None of them are excusable. And, and um, I I think this will be a chapter in history that we all need to remember. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book.
0: Yeah. Thank you for writing that book, because it's just another, it's just another tool for people to read and actually see what happened. You know, why, why did we do this? You know, let's, let's start first there because, I, I think what you've done obviously is um, courageous on so many different levels. How, how did you decide to come out and when did you decide to come out and, um, and start talking about early treatment?
1: Yeah. So that's a good question. So, you know, the frontline COVID-19 critical care Alliance or FLCCC, which I'm sure your listeners know of our organization, but um you know, we came together in March of 2020 and really, you know, we were all ICU doctors and that's where the that's where it was getting hit, right? I mean, people come to the hospital, they're going to the ICU and we, we just had a mission to come up with the most effective treatment protocols. And obviously at that time, you had to start with repurposed long-standing therapies. And our first protocol actually was for the hospitals called Math Plus. You. And, you know, because that's where we were really living and working. That's where our focus was. And that we we did, uh, you know, I, I testified on the basis of that protocol in May of 2020 on the critical need for corticosteroids. And I did that at a time when the entire world's uh, health organizations, national and international, were all saying, don't use corticosteroids. And we were saying it's critical in the hospital phase of the disease. And, you know, I got attacked for that. I actually, um, right around that time, I, I resigned from the University of Wisconsin because we had, uh, let's just say, differences of opinion on how to treat this disease. And they were telling me to do uh, supportive care only. And they were telling me as the chief of critical care to tell all the intensivists to do supportive care only, and these patients were landing on vent- ventilators. They weren't moving, they weren't extubating, they weren't improving. I mean, it was clearly they weren't being treated. You had to do something, right. and um, you know, so that was like kind of the first battle in COVID. And you know, what was nice about that battle, at least in terms of our advocacy, is we were validated. Like two months later, when you know it became standard of care worldwide, so we called corticosteroids really early. Yeah, and then your question was about when did we do an early treatment protocol. We in the FLCC didn't really have one. Paul had one on his medical school website that he put together, um, but there wasn't really uh, an effective antiviral in it. It was more kind of uh, supportive supplements and and anti-inflammatories. But in October, it's really Paul who I credit, uh, you know, with identifying the signal around ivermectin. We, we, We were following all the studies, of all the therapeutics, And suddenly I was looking like we had had seen nothing look like that before. I mean, we were seeing these large magnitude benefits from multiple centers and countries around the world in multiple phases of disease. And Mm -hmm. we were shocked. And we start, I I immediately jumped in after Paul and I started doing a deep dive, started writing a review paper. And when I was writing that review paper in the fall of 2020, um, I mean, I was, I was working full-time in the ICU. I was researching, writing all night and, uh, Every day, it was so hard to write that paper because every day I wake up, a new trial, a new preprint would post from some other place in the country. And I was trying to incorporate that. I remember battling with my reference manager. I think that paper had like 200 references. But <laughs> um, you know, we posted that paper November 13th, 2020. Our early treatment protocol came out uh, just before that, early November. And, uh, and then in December I was invited to give testimony, uh, by again, by Ron Johnson, he had invited me in May about corticosteroids. And now he was focusing on early treatment mm-hmm. and I testified on ivermectin then. And, uh, you know, I guess, fortunately that the testimony went viral, but, you know, you mentioned about my courage and stuff. I, I, I there was nothing about courage at that point. I mean, I, we were just researching and, you know, we're, we're all educators. We've all been teaching in medicine, academic medicine for decades. And, um, I mean, when you know something that could help someone, you got to teach it. And that's what we were trying to do is get that word out. And uh, I didn't know what was going to happen to me next, but uh, I, I didn't sign up for that.
0: Yeah. No, um, for me, I remember my ER doc um, at my hospital, he told me about you guys in October of 2020. And then I found a physician that was prescribing ivermectin and that protocol um, uh, telemedicine. And so I knew right away, I was like, okay, I'm going to get this into my cabinet. I looked up the safety profile. So as a nurse, what we do and what we're supposed to do all the time before we dispense a drug that we don't know is we look and see, is there any contraindications? What do we have to monitor? And is it safe? And that's our only role. And then same with the pharmacist. They're not to tell a doctor not to try this or that. Huh. That's not their job. And it, oh God, does it just piss me off that yep. we're even having this conversation because it's like, you know, even the code of course steroids, As an ER nurse, you have somebody coming in with respiratory distress, what yeah. do you do? You know, it's one of the first yeah. things that you do. Sure. And yeah. a nebulizer, right? And then they totally said, we're not gonna do any of that. And we're not going to have an antibiotic. So you think about all the deaths that occurred from early um, intubation, which they were intubating people without even getting blood gases on them.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Those examples you bring up, that was kind of, you know, there's. Kind of two categories when I look at all the missteps in, in COVID. And, and, and one was really just unrelenting fraud control, capture, corruption, which drove so much of the policies that really caused the humanitarian catastrophe. But early on, it, it wasn't corruption necessarily. It, you know, I guess I'd call it stupidity or ignorance, or really just this hyper caution. Like people were just so scared. And they forgot what their primary responsibilities are, which is to the patient, right? And and if the patient's not doing well, like I, I've always taught medicine, kind of the two guideposts I would teach all my students is that you know if what you're doing is working, keep doing what you're doing. Like if the patient's on a positive trajectory, you don't have to send them for CT scans and MRIs and try new things and do new consults. Like just trust that they're that they're improving and continue to support them in the way that you are. The converse is when what you're doing is not working, you gotta change what you're doing, especially in the ICU. I mean, these patients are dying. You have minutes to hours to make sure that you have the right therapy. And and as soon as you see someone, you know, not responding to what you're doing, know that you're getting it wrong and you got to figure out something else to do. And I didn't see that. And, and in fact, the big fight, This is this will crystallize this issue that we're talking about is, You know, what happened was I was leading clinical calls every day because it was early COVID with all the hospitalists, all the intensivists, all the residents, all the fellows involved with the clinical care of COVID patients. And so we had probably 60, this is University of Wisconsin, we probably had 60, 80 people on the call every day because policies were changing, approaches were changing, and I was leading them. And I was starting to slowly, to not subtly, strongly suggest that we need to start the patients, the, the sicker patients on blood thinners. And we had to do corticosteroids. And because there was no guidelines to support that, my superiors were coming after me because they were convinced I was going to hurt people. You know, the whole do no harm, which is a perverted interpretation of what uh, Hippocrates said, he didn't say do no harm. He actually the full phrase is that you have to help your patients with with the utmost of avoiding harm, but it doesn't mean do nothing. And I think the modern nihilistic hyper risk-averse patient safety movement. And by the way, I this I'm gonna trigger probably maybe in your uh, litters and nurses, but I cannot stand the patient safety movement. Now that's a really weird statement, isn't it? Right? Like because I am not for patient safety. Is that isn't that a particular statement? But that's not true. It's that the patient safety movement has lost its mind, lost its mind with this overarching emphasis on the safety of the patient. I have seen policies which are constructed which actually hurt patients. It's paradoxical, you know, when you restrict and anything that you can do for patients. God forbid you might hurt them, right? So for instance, you brought up the nebulizers, right? Like this idea that we, remember the discussion around nebulizers, oh, we can't nebulize these patients because it might spread the virus and everyone else will get hurt. And, and that's a tricky argument to make. Yeah. But literally, you're, you're actually sacrificing the patient's well-being for everyone else. I mean, we had N95s. There's other things you could do. You cannot prevent someone from exhaling. You know, and the additive risk of a nebulizer versus just breathing at 30 is ridiculous. It's not clinically significant. Same thing with high flow nasal cannulas. And, But I remember fighting these policies that all of my partners wanted. And then, and then they were also cautious like, oh, you're on six liters of nasal cannula, time to intubate. That is absolutely absurd. We don't intubate based on oxygen needs. To be based on work of breathing, and these patients' work of breathing were totally tolerable. You know, they might be breathing fast, but they were not. But but so like that first early kind of skirmishes that I had with COVID policies, that was just like hyper caution. I think pe- people already lost their way. And by the way, I just want to say that I resigned from the University of Wisconsin, and in my resignation letter, I said I'm morally and ethically troubled by what this institution is doing. And I, I could see the policies coming out, the whole, you know, stay home till your lips turn blue, you know, offer supportive care only. I said, I'm not gonna be a clinical leader if this is what this institution is doing. And I left and and that was early. I saw I saw a crazy train, you know, leaving the station like from the beginning. And uh, anyway, so yeah, that that was, I still remember that time. And that was just, that's when I was, I mean, the world was going mad then uh, from some just bizarre, I think, uh, I think they just lost their priorities. And I, I think it was a lot of it was fear. I wanna be forgiving a little bit because in the beginning, there's so much ignorance and fear, but they let that ignorance and fear just completely remove pragmatic sound practices that we've been following for decades. Why, why did medicine change overnight with a new disease?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A new disease that appeared respiratory in nature. We know how to handle you know, respiratory appearing illnesses. And, and we just, like you said, we just completely lost our mind. I mean, for me, you know, I just felt like I was given the discernment immediately, immediately when I found that the the world was shutting down plane, you know, don't travel on a plane unless absolutely necessary. I was like, oh my God, this is a global event. And then to see the 24 seven propaganda, I just, you know, I, I just had all these like different scriptures in my mind from when I was a little girl hearing, you know, like, do not fear, do not be anxious, do not worry, you know, and, you know, and absolutely do not stop talking to one another, you know, so very early on, I I knew that what we were seeing was propaganda. And having said that, that didn't mean that I didn't question myself almost daily. Are you crazy? Are you crazy? Jody, are you? Is is it just because you have this spirit of um, questioning the narrative, um, you know, clouding your your clinical judgment, you know? And it was like, no, everybody has lost their damn minds.
1: You know, I like that point you just made that you you made sure to question yourself, and I still chuckle because you know I was out there, you know. I mean, I went out there before the world and told them to use corticosteroids and late-phase disease when the entire world was saying no. I mean, there, you know, I made sure my ducks, my data, my experience were in a row. I mean, the five of us, I mean, Paul Marrick is the most published practicing intensivist in the history of the specialty. I had Paul on my right. I had Umberto Maduro on my left, who's literally the world expert on the use of corticosteroids and critical illness. So, like, we had the data. We had the knowledge. We had... All of the correct analyses from SARS and MERS and H1N1 that, you know, in late phase disease, hypoxema on ventilators, you, ha- you got to use steroids. We knew that from prior viral pandemics. And so when I went out there, I made sure I knew, but and I didn't question myself on steroids. But when ivermectin, when we came out with ivermectin, I mean, we had even more data We had immense amounts of data, even with the data, even with my knowledge the first few weeks or month of treating patients with ivermectin, seeing these dramatic ro- robust responses within 12 to 24 hours, that was in the first wave. I didn't see those huge responses later on for m- multiple reasons. I mean, it was still effective, but I, w- I knew there was like, nothing to question in my mind that ivermectin was an absolute COVID killer. And yet, based on all the attacks, the public insufficient evidence, low quality, small trials, you know, they just try to like, it's just about injecting doubt. It, that's all they want to do. So disinformationists, which is kind of the concept of what my book is is based on, it's based on uh, an article I, I, I read called The Disinformation Playbook. And I read it in March of 2021, four months after my testimony, because, you know, after my testimony, we were just so optimistic. We thought that Ivermectin, based on our review paper, our masking of evidence would be globally and systematically deployed in prevention and treatment worldwide. And it was going to change the trajectory of the entire pandemic. That is not what happened. Not even close. And I couldn't figure out what was happening. I mean, we we're just getting attacked. And I've said the story before, but like within two days of my testimony, the Associated Press came calling, right, for, for an interview. And we were so excited. I mean, Associated Press, we can tell them about all the data, da, da, da. And I did like a 30-minute interview. I buried the journalist in data. And a day later, the article comes out. And it's a complete hit job on ivermectin it almost barely mentions ivermectin except in the headline that it's not a miracle drug then it goes on to argue that it's another drug to debunk like hydroxychloroquine there's not one mention man i gave her supporting it and and that was like kind of my first eye-opening moment like whoa what is going on here Mm-hmm. And, and that continued. And everything was going sideways. Our paper got retracted after passing peer review for no written reason. They would not give us a, a reason why they were doing it. They wouldn't, wouldn't give us a written review. And we've never in our careers, collective careers, I would say is 120 years in academic medicine of the five of us, never had a paper retracted after peer, passing peer review. And so we knew that the, something was up here, and and this was early. This is before the fraudulent trials that they published, you know, proving that ivermectin didn't work. I mean, they were doing crazy stuff long before they used that tactic, right? Because it's all about these tactics. So, you know, Jody, the the, the story that I always tell is it's so important is that you know all of the stuff was happening you know, the, there was attacks on ivermectin from everywhere. All of the agencies, all our supposed physician leaders from societies and agencies, they were all saying the same narrative. Low quality, you know, too small, can't be trusted, poorly conducted trials, uncertain evidence. And I'm like, dude, you have 32 trials from around the world saying the same thing. I don't care if this one's not great or that one's not great. You can't have that kind of consistency without a real data signal. And But you just heard the refrain over and over. And then what happened was um, on March, early March, 2021, three or four months after my testimony, I got an email from a guy I didn't know. It was this professor, William B. Grant. He's one of the most published researchers on vitamin D science in the world. And he wrote me a two-line email. He said, Dear Dr. Corey, what they're doing to ivermectin, they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And then he included a link to an article called The Disinformation Playbook. And I clicked on the article and... It changed my life. I mean, I started to read about the tactics that industries employ when science emerges that's inconvenient to their interests. And all those tactics are named after American football plays. And every single tactic I had seen already, like 10 times over with ivermectin. And I was like, oh my God, me and Paul and the FLCCC we are literally fighting a global disinformation campaign against ivermectin. And that war was vicious. They pulled every trick in that playbook 10 times over. Um, I would say the most devastating trick that they pulled is what's called the fake. And by the way, this article was written in 2017, before COVID. And, and the most devastating tactic they did is called the fake. It's where they publish studies with predetermined results. And so you saw like some of the top institutions in the country and world Published in the top medical journals in the world, published brazenly fraudulent studies conducted to show that acting did work. And anyone who knows how to read a trial. Would have. I mean, it was hard for us to see these trials getting published. I mean, they, the, the manipulations and the design sh- shenanigans to try to bury the evidence of efficacy were so brazen, so biased. And by the way, these, don't, these are the these were the largest, most funded trials. And let's focus on that. Right? They were the most funded trials. These weren't like well-meaning clinicians looking at their practice, seeing who got and who didn't, or institutions, single centers. These were massive outpourings of cash to pharmaceutically conflicted researchers to design and conduct trials on ivermectin. And 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 those pharmaceutical conf- uh, company conflicts that all the investigators had, and literally, li- if you look at the NIH trial, because it's the most crazy example. So the one that the NIH finally funded, which they slow walked, by the way, it took them almost three years to do this trial. They, they do the trial, and they select as their principal investigator someone who owns stock and a direct competitor to ivermectin, so Trovomet, one of the monoclonal antibodies. She is wreaking conflicts with Gilead um, and a number of other competitors to ivermectin. And it's just like, you look at this stuff, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> this is through to conduct conducted trial. And that was the most manipulated trial of, of them all. And so, it, it, you know, watching that war play, it, you know, I had the playbook to the war early on, and because I'd already seen the war, and I, I I, finally understood it as a war as a disinformation campaign, I made a decision that day that I'm documenting this, I've seen everything, I have a front row seat to everything they're doing from the tops of, of you know, World Health Organization, to, to the societies and agencies, and I said, I'm, I'm documenting everything, and I, I just finished real brief, Jody, just in my introduction of the book, is that the book is kind of an autobiographical journey of mine, like who I was before COVID, and where I am now um part of that transformation was not just ivermectin at all um there's a lot of other things that have in covid that transformed me and now has estranged me from the practice of medicine but um mm. yeah no, me too. <laughs> yeah and, and so part of it is a journey um and then the other part is really I, I think of it you know as an educator i think of it as a case report an example of a disinformation war against repurposed drugs which has been going on for decades like i use ivermectin as the is the most tragic and catastrophic example of those campaigns but they are not new they've been doing this for decades off patent cheap safe repurposed, proven safe and effective drugs they will attack like you have no believe in and i think the biggest war was really actually probably the biggest war was the one on hydroxychloroquine the year before i mean it was the same war someone could have written the same book the war on hydroxychloroquine you could have shown the same tactics and um And I I would say that the the consequences of the war on hydroxychloroquine were probably greater than ivermectin because hydroxychloroquine was known very early to be effective. And Mm -hmm. they tried to demolish that from right out of the gate. And and probably by summer of 2020, I mean, no one was using hydroxychloroquine because of the disinformation campaign and the the fraudulent studies that they did on those. And so, you know, um, that never got retracted.
0: Right. right. Or they yeah, it got retracted but not publicized.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: I mean, the hospital that I worked, uh worked at was um uh, a federal hospital for the Native Americans. And so most of the people that were in leadership roles uh were the United States Commission Corps health officers. And so they were used to taking orders, right? That that they have a career of taking orders. They don't yeah. they don't um you know go up in rank. At retirement unless they take orders. And I remember after, you know, the pharmacist rejected it. And the next day I saw the pharmacist supervisor and the hospitalist on night shift in the hallway and asked them about it. I said, what, what are you guys doing? You know, and why are we not trying this medication that is safe? Like, even if it doesn't work, it's safe. And, and they, you know, and this is, you know, a recording that I have that will be released when my whistleblower goes through. I I didn't record, I didn't show everything that I have, but there, there's a lot that I do have. And one of them was this conversation and saying that, um, well, we don't experiment on the Native Americans and i said excuse me i said you're experimenting on them with a pcr test with the remdesivir that's freaking toxic that i have to draw labs on every day looking Watching these patients' heart rates, literally, I mean, it became a point, Dr. Corey, where I was like, we would sit at the nurse's station and watch all of these heart rates just dip into the 30s, the 40s, and knock on the door and say, are you okay? And they're like, yeah, I'm fine. They were asymptomatic, so we didn't have to do anything. Um, yep. But it was just wild. Yep. Like every every nurse, every doctor knew that remdesivir was not working, but yet they didn't want to at least try ivermectin. And to me, that was just mind-blowing. Even the supervisor said, oh, you mean the horse drug? And I yep. said, do you understand how ignorant you sound right now? It's a, it's a world's list of essential medications. Won the Nobel yeah. Peace Prize yeah you yeah, know we, no, we have mean, to take a, a break when we come back I do want to hear about how this changed you because uh, I do agree that it's changed many of us in in so many different ways uh but guys check out one of our sponsors uh the TwC uh you can go to america. Dot, uh, americaoutloud.shop and you'll see the the list of sponsors that we have but one of them is uh the wellness company. And uh, one of their programs that is $199 a month is aimed at freedom from pharma. And so I just love the service that they're offering to people affordable service. You know, I even have my dad that's been on, you know, um, Pepsid for since 1970, um, like statin drugs that he doesn't even need. And so it's wonderful that they are, that there is a program out there that is helping people to get off of this big pharma meds. And so check it out, AmericaOutloud.shop. out um, And we'll, we'll, We'll be right back with Dr. Pierre Corey. It's time and this is why. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Cory, Corey, welcome back. Thank you um, for writing this book. I love even more now because uh, I haven't got my copy yet uh, that you do talk about it being your journey. Essentially, that's what my book is about. It was about all my Facebook posts, essentially guiding the story and my critical thinking and my faith and how it got me through, right? So I've, I've heard in our circle, you know, how it's changed you. But I'm excited to, to hear, like, where were you and what happened?
1: Well, <laughs> the way I describe myself pre-COVID is, you know, I was a religious reader of the New York Times every day. I thought it was the paper of record, the arbiter of truth. If you want to know what was really going on, you read the New York Times. You know, so I was the classic, like, New York City liberal Um, I was a Democrat, uh, I was left wing, I had a faith and a belief that of what government could do and should do is that it should be, you know, it should level the playing field and make things fair for everyone and protect, you know, uh, those without power from those with power. And, and, you know, so I I did believe in government. And uh, I don't know if I believed in a big government, but I, I thought government had a responsibility to do a lot of things. And the other thing that I believed is that I had a strong belief in the high-impact medical journals. You know, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of American Medical Association, the Lancet, the British Medical Journal. I thought that the those top journals represented the best science and best scientists. You know, if you get a, a, an original manuscript published in one of those journals, I mean, it makes your career. I mean, it, it's like those things were like literally the tops of medicine. And like, I thought the apotheosis of of excellence. Um, I believed in agencies. Let me, let me give you the funniest thing that I believe is that when COVID broke out, I thought Phil, Fauci didn't really know much about it. I thought he was a sympathetic fellow in a tough spot with a lot of critics doing the best he can. That's literally what I thought about that man. And you start from there and you come to now. And um I I can't describe a more complete and and horrible transformation than what I believe. I mean it's not horrible. It's it's what I was transformed in came to believe based on what I saw and observed throughout COVID, that was the horrible stuff is watching what it's really like. Those institutions that I just mentioned, the journals, the agencies, you know, the newspapers, um, they've long ago been captured. And I have so much evidence to show that. I mean, I've, I've, I've had to see, I've had to watch three years of repeated policies completely divorced from data, science or pragmatism policies issued from those agencies literally written by pharmaceutical companies. So if you look at every single action they took from the beginning, every policy, and you know how they shifted and went back and forth, but they were generally, you look at the policy, all you have to ask yourself is what would a pharmaceutical company want? They would want you to restrict hydroxychloroquine to the hospital. That was the first sign of fraud. And I didn't know it was fraud at the time. I thought it was stupidity. In fact, when I saw some of these policies coming out in early COVID, I was just like, man, that's really stupid. So why are they being so stupid? Like
0: yeah. then
1: when they made a the national recommendation to restrict hydroxy to the hospital, for a viral disease we know antivirals are used within the first days of symptoms yeah. we already had data at that time to show that there was no culturable live virus in people getting into the hospital it was all this hyperinflammatory state from the breakdown of the mrna of the virus and the, and the debris of the virus and there was no more live virus there but yet they're putting hydroxychloroquine in the hospital when you have like millions of americans getting infected and i just thought that was stupid didn't know it was corrupt And then I I would say probably the one that finished me where I knew like the game was over is the day that they disappeared natural immunity. And I remember that day because when the vaccines rolled out, right, late 2020, the first thing my friends and colleagues who were internists were doing when their patients would call them, hey, I need the vaccine. Should I get the vaccine? Immediately the doctors are saying, Well, hold on, let's check antibodies. Have you had COVID? You know, because if you have antibodies, if you've had COVID, you don't need the vaccine, which is I mean, that's what we've done for every infectious disease that anyone's recovered from. right? You don't vaccinate. It's a disease you recover from. And and suddenly the FDA posts on their website that there is no evidence to support that strategy and that you should not take into account prior exposure or recovery before deciding to vaccinate. And when I saw that, I knew that was the that was when I knew the fix was in. I mean, I was like, oh. They want that market of vaccinees to be as large as possible. So they're deciding to disappear naturally. That's what I thought that day. And we know that's true today. And so, you know, so I started to see those were real evidence of the deep capture and control of really the medical system and all of its levers. Um, You know, the second transformation. So I started seeing these policies which were just crazy. And then you saw the government get in on it and start mandating stuff. And I mean, this insane exercise of power, which violated every rule of medical ethics, had no data support. And then you saw the, the massive censorship, the censoring of all the adverse data of these vaccines. Couldn't talk about it. You had this Ridiculous refrain hammered into people's heads, safe and effective, safe and effective, yeah. safe and effective. That was one refrain. The second refrain is the unvaccinated are filling the hospitals. Yeah. Like you heard it over and over. And that would get to a fevered pitch. You saw broadcasters and news people and uh, different personalities screaming about the unvaccinated. They don't deserve to live. They're murderers. They're putting us at risk. Yeah. Like people like Sean Penn and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And you know, and I saw these people. And I didn't get angry at them when I saw those clips. I was just like, whoa. wow!" I am really sad for them. I just saw them as victims. I was like, that is someone talking who's been pumped up so full of propaganda. They believe everything they've been told. And and let me take a break right there because it's a long answer. But I want to say this is that the implicit faith and trust in the institutions of society and medicine that I had before covid have been removed and are eroded. I have zero faith and trust in any of those institutions, the journals, the agencies, yeah. um, the trials who do these trials. I don't believe in in actually randomized controlled trials anymore. Not that it's not a good design. It's not 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 that it's not a good experimental method. But the modern double blind randomized multicenter control trial that's published in one of those journals is so heavily funded. You cannot remove the bias of the funder. They are flawed instruments. I will not read a large randomized control trial in a prominent medical journal because all you got to do is look at the investigators, look at their conflicts, look at their Mm -hmm. comments. Now, what they found and what they're reporting may be true. It certainly may be true, Mm -hmm. but I can't believe it to be true because I'm going to be a sucker if I do that because so much of what they've done is false over decades. I mean, pharmaceutical companies, what appears in journals is what they allow to appear in journals. Yeah, you know, so so I can't even trust medical literature. I don't know how to read it anymore because I have zero faith that I can trust what it says. Um, yeah. It's almost like the boy who cried wolf. I mean, they've lied so many times now. If they want to put in like a truthful article, I can't tell the difference. I, I believe them all to be manipulated with a certain intent. And so, so here I am, three years later. And then, and then the other thing politically. And I don't want to talk political because really, it's a little bit out of my lane. But. You know, I come to discover that suddenly science becomes political. Science is not politics. There's nothing to politics. But suddenly the therapies for COVID became political, right? Hydroxychloroquine was a Trump drug. Yeah. Fringe, quack, right-wing, anti-vaxxers. By the way, all those four descriptors I see all over the Internet in front of my name, right? Fringe, quack, right-wing, anti-vaxxer. And I was being called an anti-vaxxer before I even publicly came out that I was anti vaxx And so, like, they just wanted to lump in ivermectin with the least credible... But portions of society as per the media. But yeah. what I can't find out, and, and he, here's a really harsh thing to say. So, when I was talking about the New York Times, like, I mean, if you're a regular New York Times reader, you hate, hate Republicans. You can't stand them. You <laughs> think that Republicans are literally the source of all unrest and unhappiness and, and negativism in our society. It's clearly the fault of the Republicans, if you're a New York Times reader. And I kind of believe that. I thought yeah. there would be every bad policy that was hurting our society. Think about my political transformation. I come to find out in COVID that the only people who really knew what was going on, who were making sense, who understood and acted appropriately, were actually the conservative side, the right side. And I started to identify with them more. And then I started to get really estranged from the left because remember what I started, said before is I really have this overwhelming faith and belief that government and what its role is. And I found out that government is completely captured by corporations, yet the left is cheering them on. The left who's supposed to be anti-Big Pharma, anti-Big Authority, you know, anti-unchecked you know unchecked power. And suddenly the left is screaming for mandates and lockdowns yep. and pharmaceutical products that we have to take. And I'm like the left lost its mind. And the only people who made sense were those on the right. And, and the, my favorite example is Senator Johnson. Like I hated Senator Johnson before I met him <laughs> because I mean you read articles in New York times, right? He's literally the, the, uh, the worst person in the world. And then when I got to meet him, first of all, in three minutes of meeting him, I liked the guy. I could already tell this guy was true blue, sincere, smart, really trying his best to do the right thing here and get the right information out and i think his work is unparalleled i mean i think yeah. without those hearings that he held which got to a good portion of the country i mean it was attacked right the mainstream media went after him and those hearings and me and everyone else appeared in them mm-hmm. but there's still a good portion of the country whose lives were saved because he he held those hearings and so uh that's a long answer jody my transformation but it's been <laughs> You know, medical, intellectual, political, and and then the media transformation, right? Like I started to after I became an expert at a topic, and I started to see trusted institutions of journalism just peddle lies day after day. The Ivermectin lies, like New York Times. I mean, the New York Times, I relied on them for everything. And I saw screaming obvious propaganda on their front pages. And it, you know, it started with Ivermectin, I could tech that, and now I'm seeing it on everything. Like I don't want to get too away from medicine, but like Ukraine. Lies. Lies. Lies.
0: lies. Oh, It's so all. I'm thinking we need lies. to move to Russia.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. And, and that's the thing. It's like, historically, we've always thought of propaganda and censorship, you know, in certain countries at certain times, right? 1930s, Germany, North Korea, the USSR. Literally, the United States of America right now is living under a totalitarian regime in terms of the information systems and who's running our government. And we think, that everything is just normal and going okay. I mean, there is no freedom from tyranny. We have yeah. a tyrannical government, a tyrannical inst- fourth estate, that the, the media is absolutely killing us and people just take it. I think a good portion of the country still believes the media, still yeah. believes the government's working in their interest and it's dystopian because that's simply not true. And. How's that for an answer, Jody, saying where I came from and where I am now? I'm like, I discovered that I live in a dystopian nightmare. So this is the blue pill. pill. This is my little, little recounting of my blue pill to red pill moment.
0: (laughs) Well, I wasn't political at all before this at all. I, I, you know, had a wonderful life. traveling all around the world. And when, when this all came down and I realized what I was seeing was fear. And I'm like, you know, the, the, the devil is the author of confusion. Like that, that's its job is to make you fearful, make you anxious, make you worried. So you don't think straight and, and, and to go out and try to get people to, to see what was happening was I, I had more hate. From February to June of 2020 than I got when, since my video has gone viral, like literally I have not yep. had one death threat. I have never once been in fear for my life. I've never had like a- anything, you know? And I just tell people, I was like, because I laugh in the face of it, I'd laugh sure. in a it because I, uh, because I'm aware of what I'm dealing with. And when you're aware of what you're dealing with it, you deal with it appropriately, right and and it's funny because i remember the first time i met you um, my daughter came to an event and she she, she loved me from the sidelines, right? Like she respected sure. me from the sidelines. She's young, just got married, had a baby and, um, married a liberal moved to California or to Hawaii <laughs> and her whole world just got shook up. But I remember when she came with me, I was like, come on, you got to come. You you've heard me talk about FLCCC. Right. And I mean, you guys, I just, I mean, literally love you like family. You know, I, I just love your heart. And and I remember when she met you and she met everybody and she's like, oh that Dr. Corey, I love him. I oh. she goes, I could go out and have a beer with that man. And I go. <laughs> I <know. laughs>
1: could you imagine a beer with Fauci? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I love that. Not.
0: <laughs> He's probably one person that. I, I, if I'm going to say the hate word, um, which I don't hate anyone, um, he's right there with it, but yeah, yeah, you know, and it's just like the whole morning of, of a career. I I had just only been a nurse for like seven years at that point. Um, you know, and I, you know, I worked my way up in the hospital from running food trays to being a CNA to PCT, you know, so I'd been in it for a while, but I, I just loved nursing and I loved everything about it. And to know that I cannot go back to a hospital again and have that adrenaline of intubations and codes. And like, are you back in a hospital or is this?
1: No, 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 no. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: that that will never, that will never happen. And, you know, that's, you know, that's another interesting topic of my life is that, you know, you know, I, I told you a story about how I left University of Wisconsin. So I resigned from my first job. Then I took a job at a major center in Milwaukee. And um, it wasn't teaching, um, but I was making good money, better money than I'd made in my life. It was a busy job, but I liked it. And I gave my Ivermectin testimony. Within a day, the you know chief medical officer had me on a, a phone meeting. They were not happy. Um, because I was identified as working for them and they were like, you spoke for us. I was like, no way. I never said I was a spokesman." For-. They all do that. All those institutions will go after someone who speaks publicly if you attach your name to that institution. So they didn't fire me, but they gave me a new contract. And I told them, they said, well, we'll get this contract to you tonight. Don't do anything. Don't talk to the press until we talk to you." And I said, listen, If your contract has any infringement on my First Amendment rights, I am not signing it. We're done. It'll be a very short meeting. What happened later on that night? Six different clauses restricting my First Amendment. And I I said, I told you guys, I'm not doing this. I said, we're done and I'm leaving. So I would say it was a mutual departure, if not like a forced departure from the second job. Um, And then the third job, I was so happy. I love that third job. I was doing locums. And I was working in central Wisconsin. I, I made just great money. The nurses loved me. I had so much autonomy at that job. Yeah. I, I just really love that job. And, and, You know, what happened after I got that job is that the administration was putting pressure on the ICU group that hired me. And by the way, the ICU group knew of my work before COVID. You know, I was an ultra point of care ultrasound expert. My textbook is in, you know, two editions, seven languages. I mean, I was very very well known, especially for things before COVID. And they were so excited to have me join their group. They protected me. They told administration because they had, I was working at a hospital. It was extremely difficult to recruit specialists to. They were so happy I was there. I was taking on a lot of shifts. These guys were burnt out and they were telling the administration, if Corey goes, we go. Like they stood firm around me and protected me. But I would say within six months or seven months, I don't know what happened. I think the pressure came that they could not hold on to me anymore. And, the head of the ICU who I'd worked closely with became good friends and colleagues. We were learning from each other. We were both ICU directors. I came from UW and so we were sharing, you know, best practices and what we liked about, you know, running ICUs. And he just called me one day and he said, Pierre Van, I'm really sorry, but we don't need you anymore. And
0: Mm. and I knew
1: what it was about. And, and, you know, so I'm like, because I'm a contrarian, I guess, public physician, no hospital is going to hire me. And so (laughs) I knew that my academic career was over and, um, but I got to tell you, Joy, I, I'm still doing medicine. You know, I have a, a private telehealth practice, okay. um, which I love. I focus on uh, vaccine injury and long haul COVID, two diseases which, again, the system is failing at responding to, understanding, treating. You know, they're all waiting for randomized control trials to tell them what to do and guidelines. There are none. The research uh, effort in long COVID and vaccine injury failed. I and mean, first of all, vaccine injury doesn't exist, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't really even exist. I mean, there's no research trial or center of excellence studying vaccine injury. Nope. They just put everything into long COVID, right? So there's this all this politicization of, of science. We can't even talk about what's what the disease really is, which is a syndrome triggered by the vaccine. It's not long COVID. It's the vaccine. And so, you know, I, I love what I do now. I, I am my own boss. I'm autonomous. I actually my my telehealth practice Uh, We practice under the jurisdiction of the Crow Indian tribe and the First Nations Medical Board, which is a federal statute which protects tribal practitioners, means I can see patients in all 50 states, and if anyone has a problem with what I do, any complaints come to me, no state has jurisdiction over me that has to go to the tribal council. Um, which are generally more favorable for my approaches. And so like I'm protected from state, um, you know, action against me. The only requirement is that any patient who sees me has to join the Crow tribe. And it costs like $35. But once they're a tribal member and I'm a registered tribal practitioner, that relationship is now protected under the First Nations Medical Board. And so like I I just the transition was difficult, losing the jobs, the financial losses. But at the same time that was happening, The FLCCC was thriving. I mean, we were kicking butt. We were getting our protocols around the world. We were getting so much adoration and adulation and gratitude from doctors from across the globe and patients and testimonials. Like, we knew that we were putting out good life-saving guidance. And so, and there were highs, there were lows, and but the transition was rocky. But I'm really happy where I am now. I love my practice. I'm learning more and more how to help these patients who are the most gaslit and abandoned patients in history for any disease. Yes. Of them. And so like, again, I feel like I'm filling that void, you know, me and the F we're filling a void, which the system just keeps creating voids in the care of our population. And so, yeah, I, I to me, it's kind of exciting now. And and I haven't really gotten it. I mean, the media still goes after me a little bit. But like, generally, people leave me alone. That's just me and my patients now and, and the FLCCC. And we're working on other stuff. I mean, like Paul Merrick just did four-month deep dive into, like, read 1,300 papers and put together a scientific monograph on the topic. He's of- so brilliant. Repurpose drugs for cancer. Another scourge in society. I mean... There are so many treatments for cancer that oncologists have no idea about. It's not in the medical school curriculums. It's not in their residency training, and it's only alternative practitioners that know this stuff. And I mean, come on, the allopathic system is so captured and controlled for you know a pill, you know a profitable pill for every problem, and, mm-hmm. and half of them don't work. Half of them are toxic, and that's why I said like I'm a straight. Like, the way I see medicine now, like I'm just like that. That system was captured long ago, and. I love where I am. Private practice, autonomous, no oversight. That's that's the only place you can really practice medicine at this point. I mean, if you think you're a good doctor in the system, you have no idea what doctoring is. You're probably a good doctor. You just have no idea how you don't know what you don't know. And those doctors in the system, they have no idea what they don't know. They know what they know. They don't know what they don't know that that you know what and, and oh gosh
0: i wish we had another hour to talk cuz i yeah. could just talk to you forever um with you saying that i i do want for the last couple of minutes you speaking directly to medical students um mm. because i we we have a big campaign now nurses out loud to help or to at least educate these student nurses on going into nursing school, they are making them take the injection, right? Even though, but when they first started, they were saying, "Oh, we're not, we're not the ones who are regulating it. The hospitals won't allow you to allow you to do clinicals." And now, the hospitals have, most hospitals have removed that. Um, but they're still going through it. What would you say to someone who is either thinking about going into medical school or wants to go into medical school right now? What would you say to them?
1: Yodi, I really don't think I can say anything to them if they're going to make that decision. This is honest. This is just one man's opinion. You asked me this question, I'm going to give my really blunt answer. I would not have tell anyone to go into allopathic medicine. I think you can have a brilliant career. You can be very happy. I can't honestly tell you to do that because if I told you to do that, I'd have to tell you, I I mean, I can't, my opinion on allopathic medicine is not real medicine. It's so corrupted and controlled. I see, I see, you might be content in your ignorance thinking you're a good doctor, but I I don't think it's a really viable path. I, I would tell someone I, I would say osteopathy, but osteopathy, is, is, as far as nowadays, is essentially allopathic medicine. However, there are still schools and there are still practitioners of true osteopathy. And I, I that's probably one of the most respected specialists I have is the true osteopaths. So I would say either become a real osteopath and, and develop and hone osteopathic practices. The DOs were captured a long time ago. They're mostly allopathic. You can't tell the difference between an MD and a DO nowadays. But there are still there are still a cadre of highly skilled osteopaths. And I think, and osteopaths is not just spinal manipulation. When you learn what these guys do and their understandings of concepts of disease and approaches, the old school guys, I would say follow those guys. That's number one. Probably a second would be maybe naturopathy. Um, You know, learn about different compounds and strategies, um, you know, to treat disease that, you know, are safe. They've been shown to be effective. I mean, the, the science and naturopathy, the problem is the, the, the rigid kind of randomized controlled trials are missing. So you have to be careful there. But like, I, I just think that there's more autonomy and freedom to learn and understand different concepts. And like, I can't tell someone to go into a system where the education knowledge base is so tightly controlled and captured and right. corrupted. You know, that education is teaching doctors to do what they want you to do. So, how am I going to tell someone to go into intellectual servitude? How am I going to tell someone, go into a system that's going to keep you ignorant to what the real truth is about how, what, you know, what is the underlying nature of acute diseases, chronic diseases, and what are the available therapies? You know, I can't tell someone to go to allopalic medical school after what I know. Yeah, same,
0: same. I agree with you. You know, I, I, I really almost feel like I just, I just want to be done with all of that. But then it's like, okay, well, what can I do to help? You know, because it, what every single one of us will ever either have somebody that we love or we have to go to a hospital at some point. And what we're raising up is um, just people that are not allowed to be autonomous for themselves. And we expect them to advocate for our loved ones. Like that is such a scary thought. And I know that hospitals are being built and I know that there's like freedom hospitals that are happening. You know, there's different um, um, like health accounts that they don't, health sharing accounts that people are starting to be involved in. Um, So, you know, when people ask me, well, how is this going to change? Where do you see this changing? And I'm like, that that system is dead. It's dead. There's no saving it well, I'm done even trying, you know, to go back to a hospital. Can I? Yeah, sure. I can. But it's like going back to a bad relationship. What? I'm just going to go back because I'm right. quote unquote quote, comfortable. Like, please, yeah. you know,
1: no. And I like that you bring up these parallel systems that are developing. I mean, you know, that that's the nature of, of life. I mean, you know, yeah system failed. We got to build new ones, and I think there is a lot of good energy. And you know, and I've also talked to others that they want to start residency training programs yes. under certifying bodies. And so, I, I think this this collapse, this catastrophe wrought by these agencies and the leaders of science and these journals, and all the destruction they caused, people are fleeing. They, yeah. they have to build a safe haven of, of open education, transparent education and data and, and also the, the, the unrestricted right to practice. I mean, you know, before COVID, last thing I want to say before COVID, I had never been told I could not use any FDA approved drug, with the exception of and you'll know this, IV Tylenol, right? Because it was so expensive. So there you had yeah. to make sure whoever's in charge of the IV Tylenol, you know, dispensing. But yeah. that was the only that was the only restriction. If I thought a medicine was critically needed for a patient, especially one who's dying, no one ever could tell me not. To. I was in charge. I was attending ICU charge for someone who's dying. Who's going to tell me right. what I can? If I think that the benefits outweigh the risk and suddenly you had pharmacists in certain cells, hospital administrators in certain cells telling decades long experience intensives like Paul Merrick that he can't use any drug on the protocol that he developed. Yeah. I mean, that's why going back to the last question, how can I tell you to go to medicine if that's what you're going to run into if you're a real doctor? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, how, how can people get in touch with you?
1: Yeah. So first off, so my my private practice for anyone uh, sick, now we also do, we do long haul uh, COVID and vaccine injury, but we also do general medicine. I have a, I have a couple of partners now. Unbelievable. I, I love my team. They're just amazing. I, they wouldn't be on my team if they weren't amazing. By the way, we went through quite a few providers who we just okay. kind of let go pretty quickly because it just, they weren't who I yeah. needed at all work with. And so I love my team. We do everything. Um, That's DrPierreCorey.com, D-R-P-I-E-R-R-E-K-O-R-Y.com. And we call ourselves the Leading Edge Clinic. The nonprofit, as you mentioned, uh, Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, which is FLCCC.net. And then obviously there's my book, war on ivermectin you know you can buy it uh, on amazon you can buy it off of i which is dell big trees um imprint because this is the first book that they put on their new imprint and um so they've been promoting the book and um yeah I, i'm i'm awesome. just so happy that the books doing really well people seem to really like the book yeah. um and it, it makes me immensely happy not not only because obviously i want the book to be successful from a financial perspective but i i just being sincere here at I, that story needs to get out. I, I, that needs yeah. to be written by all. I, I tell the truth, nothing but the truth in that book. And yeah. truth is absolutely scary when you see what the truth was mm-hmm. and what society believed. And um, it I, I is. hope you know that story well. So thanks.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's a, that's the reason why I wrote my book. I was like, you know, people just need to know my story and how my ethics and my faith yeah. that, that, that guided me period. If that's all one thing I could do for people to not have fear, you know, that's, that was a reason. Uh, But that's all the time we have for today, friends. Remember, we are here on air Monday through Friday, five days a week, Eastern Standard Time at 10am with an encore at 11pm. You tune in for a different nurse host daily. As we walk you through all of these hot topics, we will empower you with the information and education. We will advocate and we will stand in the gap for you because we are nurses and that's what we do. I'm your host, Nurse Jody O'Malley, and you can find me here every Friday morning, but also be sure to makeamericaoutloud.com, your daily stop for all the latest news and happenings. We must all do our part and share the stories, the articles, the podcasts so we can help secure America's future. Until next time, be safe, be well, and God bless. It's time and this